Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski look back and reflect on the past year. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from LA, still here, still in LA, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online, uh, still in uh, New York, still here, we're all good. Yeah, I must say I'm momentarily still in LA, but this is the week after Thanksgiving and I am heading off to Mexico tomorrow. Nice, nice. Very nice. Taking a little vacation. I love escaping after Thanksgiving because people are still kind of slowly getting back into their routines. You know, it's not a such a full on week this week. So I head off tomorrow, Tuesday morning, come back on Saturday, back in action for almost all of December. So it feels like a great little respite before the holiday. Yeah, it sounds cool. And uh, I got my you said you got your booster you were telling me i did i got it the day before thanksgiving what about did you get your booster too you know it was weird so i was we were trying to make appointments and we couldn't get any place right and then my niece said there was this food town near her where you could just go in and get it so i went in and i got it it was very weird but uh how did you feel after did you have any side effects uh yeah i was a little tired i kind of fell asleep and that was it of the three I've had, that was probably the least side effects I've had. So uh, I'm I'm boosted. I'm boosted. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm stoked. I actually I had it the day before Thanksgiving and felt fine that day, and then felt super run down on Thanksgiving. But luckily, I didn't have to do a thing. I just sat there on my parents' couch, kind of uh, looking a little forlorn. So yeah, I am boosted and ready. And just about everybody in my family's boosted. I think it just reminds us that this is really the pain in the butt that won't go away and much more. I mean, it's, we, we joke about it because it's easier to make light of it than to, you know, sound terrified, but we recently lost somebody that we all cared about very deeply here at JCK. Those of you listening may have read in the run up to Thanksgiving that we lost Donna Borelli. She was our longtime associate publisher to complications from COVID. And it was a real gut punch to hear that. Donna was, I mean, if you talk to anybody, they'll say the same thing. She was the glue that held this this magazine together for just about two decades. And she, uh, she she was pretty much in charge for about a year when Mark left and came back. In that kind of period, she basically ran the magazine. And uh, she was an extraordinarily hard worker and uh, a lovely person. I think it's a testament to how people felt about her that she worked for in-store for like two or three years. I mean, not really that long, but they ran a very long, glowing obit to her. National Jeweler, uh, obviously, we ran a long thing to her. On Facebook, there's so many comments. And here was somebody who was really pretty much behind the scenes. You know, she wasn't a person you would meet at a party. And yet so many people remember her fondly and had very lovely things to say about her. And I think that's just a testament to all that she did and all that she gave to the publication and to just about everything. You know, one thing that you heard over and over again is she gave 150%. And that's just how she was. Yeah, she was certainly an unsung hero because she just didn't look for praise and she didn't, you know, seemingly didn't really care about that. She really just was an authentically, genuinely committed to this magazine and the people who work there. We we miss her deeply and we're so terribly sorry for her family and everyone who knew her. I mean, we found ourselves in that 
in that lot. Yeah. And um, I did put together a, a list of some of the people that we lost this year. It's possible I'm leaving people out and uh, I apologize for that. But these are some of the bigger names that we lost this year. And a lot of these people, especially when I came into the business, were giants of the industry. So Jose Hess, Helene Fortunoff, Elsa Peretti, Nate Light, Herb Littman, Willie Noggle, and Ruthie Tivill. All uh, very, very sad losses. And there was two uh, women who departed probably before their time, certainly very young, Alex Wu and Esther Hedea, who was caught in that Miami building collapse. That's right. The Surfside collapse back in June. Um, yeah, that was Esther. That was a, a terrible story and such a tragedy. And, and then Alex Wu, of course, passed away from cancer in the spring. Rest in peace. We celebrate all those names. There's some of those names you cited were pivotal, pivotal names to the business and are known and beloved by so many people in the trade. You know, if we talk about sort of getting back to the pandemic and what it's wrought, because what we're talking about here, if it isn't abundantly clear by now, is we're just looking back. I mean, it's we're here on the doorstep of December 2021. Can't believe we've all made it here. I mean, it feels like it's almost like the same year that started in March of 2020. It's just sort of been lengthened. And so we look back at what at least this year has wrought, and it's been a, a real up and down mix. I mean, we saw the vaccines come out. We saw things kind of get back to normal. Then the Delta variant surged in the summer and we, you know, here we are facing perhaps a new, even worse variant, but hopefully not. And yet the business has remained intensely, intensely strong and, and very, very good, better than last year, I would say. Projections for the holiday are, you know, mind-blowing. I think any jeweler is probably in a very good place, at least those of, uh, of you who've been able to kind of adapt to your business and make sure that you're offering as many omni-channel offerings as you can to your clients. It, it's been an incredibly strong year for jewelry. And so it is the conundrum of that. Or I don't know if it's a conundrum. It, it does actually make sense when you think about what it is that people seek in times of distress and times of crisis. They seek things with meaning, you know. So perhaps it's not that head scratching that jewelry has performed so well during this crisis. But I think it's a testament to the industry and how well people have responded, even established conservative jewelers who were able to start doing bridal consultations over Zoom and implemented their curbside pickups and all the different ways that people have reacted to different consumer needs this year and last year, of course. And one factor that seems to be at play here and one of the reasons why jewelry is doing so well is bridal and the fact that there is probably going to be a wedding boom going forward. You know, a lot of people are going to get married probably in 2022. That's certainly good news for the industry. You know, there's long been this idea that lab-grown and natural diamonds are at odds. And, you know, there's been possibly some cannibalization from the natural to the lab-grown. I don't deny that. But what's fascinating and interesting is you're seeing both sectors do great at the same time. I mean, lab-grown, there's no precedent, but natural diamonds certainly have not done this well in years and years. It's heartening to see kind of all sectors doing doing very well at this point. It is very heartening. And I mean, I, I think about the categories I cover specifically and specialize in, and I think about the out of control secondhand watch market, you know, in terms of pricing and desire and availability or lack thereof, especially for the marquee brands, what I call the big four, Patek Philippe, Audemars Piguet, Richard Mill, 
and Rolex, of course. You know, the pricing that we're seeing for pre-owned watches is like nothing any of us have ever seen. And everybody in the market keeps asking themselves, is this a bubble? Is this, you know, are these prices bound to come back down to earth? And there are multiple opinions on that front, you know, or I should say two different sides you can take of, yes, it is a bubble and this isn't sustainable. Or, you know, maybe watches are just at the brink of a, a market that might rival the art market one day and art doesn't have a ceiling. So why should a fine mechanical timepiece? I think jewelry's got a very bright future in terms of its potential as a collectible, as an investment. Um, not that I'm recommending people go out and buy jewelry because they think it's going to accrue in value, but you know, I think that is a side point. Maybe not for the lab-grown sector, but for the natural diamond market, there's probably something to be said there about these diamonds accruing in value, given that they're not going to be mined forever. And uh, one one of the points you made about secondhand watches—is uh, this a correction? I mean, I spoke to the CEO of Watchbox last week. And he said, you know, it's certainly possible there's going to be a correction, but he believes the boom is being fueled by two specific factors that young people are starting to get into watch collecting, especially older millennials. You know, that generation just is a huge generation. So it has huge buying power. The fact that they're starting to get into this has been really important. And he says Generation Z consumers are starting to get interested in this. And the other factor, he said, and I think those, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, all those five brands that you listed are private companies. Oh yeah. The fact that these watch brands and these big watch brands aren't owned by public companies and feel no pressure to increase their production because they look at the long view, right? And they may see the fact that there's this huge demand for Rolex and Patex in particular, but right now they're just kind of keeping to the plan and they see no reason to start turning them out because that would probably hurt their long-term value. So as long as watch companies still do that and you assume that they will because that's how they've acted for decades, chances are we'll see it. It might be a bit of a bubble. Martin Rappaport, my old boss, used to quote a Yiddish saying, no tree grows to the heaven. So, you know, at some point things go up and down and that might happen. Yeah, certainly. And I just wrote a piece that's getting ready to go up on the Times site next week. And it's about the art jewelry market and this sort of eternal conversation we have about is jewelry art. You know, lots of people like to describe their jewels as wearable art. And it's very subjective, very, very subjective, but jewelry and its perception as art, there's just a greater drumbeat around that conversation. We have a lot more talented jewelers working in really fine fine materials or even not so fine materials, but using them in striking ways, using traditional techniques and they are describing their pieces as art and galleries are more so stocking those pieces, showing them as they would sculptures or fine art paintings. So there is this conversation about jewelry that I think is going to take off in a direction of, of is it art and when is it art? When is it not art? I think we'll be hearing a lot more about that in the new year and in the new decade. And all of it is generally great news for our business because I think the more people that gravitate to jewelry, whether it's because they're seeking a, sort of a type of art or again, because they just want to buy something that holds meaning. I think it just bodes very well for this business. Yeah. And uh, it puts me in mind of one of my favorite interviews that we did this year of Alan Revere. Some of the things that he said about why he considers jewelry art 
and a craft, even though, you know, you can do it with CAD and all these things, but he's still very much an advocate of the old fashioned way of doing it. And the fact that it's not just a craft, but a craft that goes back thousands and thousands of years and you know, there's these techniques that haven't changed. I mean, that's, that's amazing to me. It is. It is. I love those sort of workshops where you can walk in and you almost feel like it could be Elizabethan era England, or it could be the 21st century, but the tools are the exact same tools. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now back to the show. You know, on the subject of watches and tradition, we should also mention in the last couple of weeks that Basel World, which had all sorts of problems and then was canceled due to COVID, and then a lot of the big watch brands pulled out, then went to another name, and then decided to resurrect itself as Basel World and focus on smaller independent watchmakers. It's still not going to happen, and it's not ready, and it's a, a sad story for a, something that was a hugely important institution in the industry it all it is a little sad i mean or, or a lot sad especially for those smaller brands that would show at basel and you know that was their one big platform how else do smaller or mid-sized brands get discovered not that discovery was guaranteed but certainly it was possible there and that big beautiful giant convention center that they remodeled and spent what like half a billion dollars on yeah, you kind of imagine it just sitting there like some vestige of a different time, which I guess it is and, and will continue to be. But we're more looking back on this episode and we will have a looking ahead episode. But, you know, there is the Watches and Wonders Fair coming to Geneva in 22 in end of March, early April. So it's not that fairs are gone or that places to gather and talk to certainly other watch lovers you know, that still exists. It's just a more streamlined affair, which I think does put smaller mid-sized brands at a disadvantage. So hopefully the competition that we see in this industry won't be harmed. You know, when we talk about the watch business and how gangbusters it is, we're really talking about a core quintet of brands and also a number of independent makers like FP Journe. So RIP Basel World, we hope you come back at some point in some new and rejuvenated way. What else? Yeah, so there's been a, a bunch of notable IPOs this year. As far from a pure jewelry standpoint, probably the most significant one was Brilliant Earth. We're hoping to have the CEO on the podcast pretty soon. And I remember when they when they started, you know, specializing in conflict-free ethical jewelry. They were in many ways, I think, ahead of their time in predicting the need for traceability and for the fact that there would be this consumer demand for for traceable diamonds and for diamonds with a secure provenance. And they've grown into a huge company. And I've just heard that they're starting to use fair trade gold, which is really fantastic. And there's been a few other companies that are probably jewelry related that had IPOs this year. The Real Real, Rent the Runway, Rue, Guilt Group, which is a combination of what used to be called Flash Sellers and Claire's, which just, I think, three years ago filed for bankruptcy and is now a public company. And a lot of companies have gotten major funding, including Diamond Foundry, which also has a big technical division, Watchbox, uh, which we, we noted got $163 million. So there's a lot of money floating around, and some of it's not just going to jewelry at the counter, but kind of uh, in the executive suite too. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't know why this is true, but when I think about that comment you made about the watch brands that are really burning up the marketplace are these family-owned businesses, or at least businesses that aren't owned by public companies or big luxury groups. But in jewelry, when I read the reports like, like Richemont and LVMH, jewelry is such a star in their portfolios, and there's so much room for growth there in terms of branded jewelry, especially so much opportunity because much, much, much of the jewelry market still remains unbranded, or at least there's right opportunities. And I don't know why that is, why jewelry performs well at publicly owned companies, but watches less so. That's something I'd have to sort of tackle or think about in a different way. But it has been, again, a banner year for jewelry. And that's true, I think, across the the different sectors, whether you're a mom and pop store serving a local community with well-made quality products, or you're a big luxury group, or you're about to have an IPO like Brilliant Earth. Yeah. I I mean, it's great to see, because I remember like five or six years ago, like a lot of companies were getting out of jewelry and, you know, it just wasn't interesting to them. And to a lot of players, jewelry was kind of something that they looked at as this old fashioned industry that was kind of perhaps dying out. Now we're seeing it as vital and we're seeing people like LVMH saying, you know, jewelry is where we see a lot of our growth coming from. And that's a huge turnaround. And it's amazing. And I think it's partly due to the general shrinkage of the industry that it's keeping some of the stronger players in play. And it's due to the circumstances of the pandemic. But it's just great to see. It's pretty exciting, actually. It's both a feel-good business and it feels good at the moment to be in the business because people are happy. You know, I, I remember when I did a supply chain story earlier this year, actually earlier in the fall, just checking in with people about all that potential disruption, how it would play out in gems and jewelry. Much of it really was a supply chain issue fueled by the insane demand. So it was less like, you know, the supply chain had just collapsed or something. The pressures weren't on the supply side. They were from the demand side. Many jewelers were having a hard time meeting this great demand. I should say, speaking of LVMH, I believe you have some big news you're going to break in the New York Times about its latest acquisition, Tiffany. Yes. Well, there's so much to say about Tiffany this year. And Rob, you be a better recap of some of the the initiatives that we've seen under its new ownership, of course, LVMH, I believe acquired the brand. Maybe the acquisition was complete in January. January, yes. Announced in October of last year. Since January, we've seen a ton of interesting, unexpected things come out of Tiffany, perhaps being driven by Alexander Arnaud, Bernard Arnaud's 28-year-old son. Is he 28? Somewhere in there. But Patek Philippe and Tiffany. Tiffany are coming out with a limited edition, which is Patek Philippe has been in the U.S. since perhaps a little bit before 1851, but 1851 was the year that Tiffany became its first authorized U.S. dealer, and they have been in continuous partnerships since then. That's 170 years. It is going to be maybe the most unprecedented demand we've seen ever for a limited edition of a Patek Philippe timepiece. And of course, a retailer signature adds cachet to that. If you don't know anything about watches, what you should know is that even though Patek Philippe is already at the you know very top of its game, if you own a timepiece by Patek Philippe, you are playing in the very, like I said in the New York Times story, the horological big leagues. But one way to add cachet to a piece by the Geneva maker is to find a watch with 
with a retailer signature on the dial. Sometimes they call them retailer sign dials or double sign dials where Patek Philippe's name is at the 12 o'clock position and at six o'clock you'll see the name of the retailer. And there's a long history of that from the 20th century. Very famously, there was a retailer in Caracas named Sorpico Ilaino and those pieces come up through vintage channels and there's a premium that people pay for these retailer signatures. I learned the reason for that premium is because when you're talking about vintage timepieces and there's a retailer signature on the dial, it often indicates the watch has not been restored. And because collectors prize original condition above all else, that retailer signature is just one more very telling example of how the watch has remained in its original condition. There hasn't been a a buffed dial or it hasn't really been polished out. So people prize them. And to this day, the only retailer that Patek Philippe continues to share its dial with or feature the name of that retailer is Tiffany. That's the only retailer in the world that still has their name on a Patek Philippe timepiece. So it'll likely be one of the most sought after wristwatches in the world. Yeah, I mean, Tiffany's had a really interesting year because at this point it has a lot more money behind it. And they've done a lot of interesting promotional things. They did that April Fool's joke where they announced that they would be changing their signature color from blue to yellow. And that apparently freaked a lot of people out. But, you know, it was funny. It was clever. It was innovative. They've just done a bunch of things. They've obviously done the Beyonce tie up and that raised a bit of controversy. They did Not Your Mother's Tiffany ad, which also raised a bit of controversy controversy and that was pulled very quickly and they just didn't talk about it anymore. And what I've heard from people on the inside, and it's hard to talk to people on the inside at this point because a lot of the people that I knew and uh, the older people have left, you know, and that often happens when you have an acquisition, especially a major acquisition like this one that a lot of the veterans tend to leave. But what I've heard is that the metabolism of the place has gotten a lot quicker. It used to be that if they would come up with a marketing initiative, they would come up with like maybe two or three a year and they would be really, you know, something spectacular. And now as we've seen, they're doing like five or six a year and not all of them work, but they're doing more. They're definitely out there a lot more than they used to be. And I've, I've also heard there's more accountability if these things don't work. Whereas if something didn't work, you know, Tiffany was the kind of place that people stayed for years and decades and stuff like that. Now there's more accountability. So people do sometimes lose their jobs uh, if something doesn't work, except of course, if you are the son of the chairman of LVMH and then you're absolutely fine. But it's been a, a, a fascinating year. And I, I mean, one of the interesting things that they're doing is they're going more upscale, but they're also trying to go younger, right? Which seems to be a contradiction in terms, but it isn't really because apparently from what they found is that a lot of the younger shoppers tend to spend more. So you're trying to hit a higher price point, but also a younger consumer than you're spending. So you have something like Beyonce, but you know, it's not like, hey, Beyonce kind of hanging out. It's Beyonce in a tux playing a grand piano uh, with Jay-Z. There's an obvious symbol of wealth, whereas perhaps in the past, Tiffany tried to be kind of hip in a different way and, you know, would show people dressed down. You know, now it's more formal wear and, and, and a different kind of image. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting to see how they... Yeah, how they're positioning themselves for the 2020s, for Gen Z. I don't know why, but I I think a lot about Chinese consumers and how luxury brands are responding to Chinese consumers and what that means for how they will end up incorporating the way they serve consumers in China who are so used to being digital, who are so incredibly tech savvy and everything is super hyper digital and how that ends up trickling down to and, and affecting their businesses here. I've done a lot of thinking 
thinking around China. And China is obviously a big story in the world in terms of geopolitics and it's kind of rather fraught relationship with the US. But what's so interesting to me about China is just how, how luxury brands are dealing with Chinese consumers and what that implies about what's next for American consumers or Western consumers. I think that a lot of brands in China have to be on things like live streaming, you know, because that's such a popular channel. And I don't think it's super popular here yet, but I can't imagine they're not going to take their learnings in China and apply them to here, which means brands like Tiffany, you know, where you sort of join a, a live streaming channel and you're able to sit there and buy silver bracelets all day long. And it all to me is just interesting to see how these brands are courting Gen Z consumers around the globe and what their learnings in one market might mean for our market. These are all kind of random thoughts, but you know, don't underestimate Tiffany's ability and willingness to experiment. Clearly they've shown under LVMH that they're ready to do things differently. And I find that really exciting. It has not all worked. It has not all worked, but you know, kudos to them. If you're not going to try, nothing's going to work. So I, I'm a big fan of seeing companies try things even if they fail because there's just no other way. Otherwise, it just remains stayed and stagnant and we don't have a lot of new cool things to talk about. So I applaud them. Okay, uh, speaking of trying and failing, the war in Afghanistan has ended after 20 years. You want to, I know you just did something for the New York Times about Afghanistan gems you yeah, I'll, I'll briefly talk about my q and I did with Gary Bowersox. Uh, those of you who are Tucson regulars or know anything about the gem trade will likely have heard of Gary. He is the last word on Afghanistan. His first trip to the country was in 1972 when he went to look for lapis. And he was there earlier this year, just three months before the Taliban took over. He's 81 now, and he made that trek up to the Panjshir Valley, which is where all uh, Afghanistan's famous emeralds are found. And he knows that country better than certainly anyone I know, but he may be the most interesting man in the world. So because of the way he's traveled and what he's done, he was great friends with Masood, the leader of the Northern Alliance, who was assassinated by Al-Qaeda in the days before 9-11. These are figures in the history books, and it's always interesting to see where the gem and jewelry trade intersects with political events and world history. And there's quite a, a number of times where it does because the gem trade is so historic and so international and obviously has a great deal of money behind it that is used to fuel things that are both good and bad. And we'll see what happens to the stones that come out of that country and whether or not consumers or whether or not they'll encounter issues like gems from Burma or Myanmar have. I think in one final recap, we're just here at our time, but we cannot forget to mention some of the sort of after effects of 2020's racial reckoning that we saw after George Floyd's killing and the Black Lives Matter protests. We saw a lot of jewelers start to think about ways to help you know, introduce diversity and inclusion into their stores, into their businesses. And we saw a lot of efforts around shining a light on Black jewelers. And one of the nicest coolest, absolutely most attention-grabbing initiatives came out. I think it was September where Sotheby's staged an exhibition called Brilliant in Black, a Jewelry Renaissance featuring pieces by 21 of the world's leading black jewelry designers. And one of them was a jeweler. The story about her ring was one of our top stories of the year. Maggie Simpkins, an LA jeweler, made a million dollar ring for this exhibition. And it was just one example of the incredible work that so many jewelers, some of them who had not had the light shown on 
them. And so it's just a wonderful thing to see. And Melanie Grant, who's an author, editor, economist, editor, stylist, wrote a book about jewelry as art called Coveted that came out last year. She's the one who curated this exhibition for Sotheby's. And if you haven't seen it or aren't familiar with it, just Google Brilliant in Black and you'll find your way to Sotheby's.com. And uh, I believe the Black and Jewelry Coalition was founded this year, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe at the end of last year. But, you know, you look at WJA and, you know, obviously this is still mostly a male dominated industry, but you look at how many big companies are now headed by women in our industry, you know, and that a lot of it is due to the WJA kind of pushing forward. So, uh, you know, perhaps we'll see something very similar with, with the Black and Jewelry Coalition. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's all good stuff. Plenty of plenty of ways to go. Not We're hardly there yet, but these are all good signs, good progress. I guess on that note, we've got one more episode before we close out 21 with a retailer in the thick of the holiday season. But uh, if we miss you on that episode, have a wonderful holiday, all the best, and we can't wait to talk to you in 22. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.